Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career breaking down silos by engaging with innovators across industries. And now I'm sharing those conversations with you. Meet the forward-thinking leaders challenging the status quo and unleashing creative new ways of improving financial health by seeing their customers, employees, and communities in 3D. What is the purpose of a corporation? Is it to generate return for shareholders, or is it more than that? My guest today, Judy Samuelson, has been on a decade-long campaign to disrupt the narrative of economist Milton Friedman that corporations exist solely to maximize shareholder value. As the founder and executive director of the Aspen Institute's Business and Society Program, Judy's work has begun to bear fruit with CEOs pledging to take a broader view. But have their actions reflected their words? I'm excited to talk to Judy about that today. She's a friend, a board member here at the Financial Health Network, and the author of an insightful new book titled The Six New Rules of Business, Creating Value in a Changing World. Judy, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thank you so much, Dan. It's a total delight to be here and with you. Same. Congratulations on the new book. You were kind enough to share it with me. Uh, actually, the, your just-completed manuscript um, this past summer. And so I've had a chance not just to read it, but to really ruminate on it. And I'm excited to get to have one of our conversations about it. In many ways, the book reads like a capstone of your career, um, all of the work you've been doing around the role of business and society. And indeed, many of the ideas that you champion um, in the book seem to be coming to fruition, whether that's the need for businesses to act on behalf of all their stakeholders or to think long-term. But the fact is you didn't actually start off life as a business reformer, you were a banker. So tell us a little bit more about how you got from there to here. Well, there was one chapter before the banking, which was working in state government in California. So that was that was probably closer to my original uh, intentions than banking. Banking, however, was an incredible experience. I came east out of California for business school, and I went into banking because I felt like I didn't get it yet. You know, I'd kind of been introduced to accounting and you know a little bit of the language, but I didn't I I didn't get the context. You know, I used to say to people, it, was, it wasn't until I'd read, you know, 100 balance sheets that I understood what it meant to be a $5 million company or a half million dollar company. It wasn't until I'd done a lot of factory tours that I started to get the sense of scale and what it meant to, you know, hire somebody and to, you know, really fulfill, a, uh, you know, an order. And so... Um, I learned a tremendous amount in banking. It gave me the language. It else helped me understand what people, what motivated people in the business sector, and particularly in, in investment finance. And that positioned me to, to you know, move back closer to my origins and to take a job at the Ford Foundation, running what today they would call their social impact fund. Um, but that was the start was in banking, and it's it's what it's where I went to understand how organizations actually work. You know, like how are decisions made? How do we get things done in society? And that was kind of why I went to business school and why I decided I needed to kind of get into a place where I'd see lots of businesses functioning rather than maybe just going inside one of them. And so when you saw that, what did you see that led you to think something here is not working right? Well, I remember a moment, uh, it's an interesting question. I, it immediately draws to mind. I worked for Bankers Trust Company, which is New York City. It was the first, what they said, merchant bank or kind of it was a money-centered bank. In other words, it wasn't a big branch. 
enterprise like a Citibank or a, or a Chase, it was a you know it was it was a business leading enterprise. It didn't have uh, retail clients or customers, and it got to the point uh, when. I, you know, they had sold off all their branches and were, you know, kind of consolidating services and going higher, kind of higher up the food chain and servicing, um, uh, functioning both as an investment bank as a commercial bank simultaneously. And there was a moment where I realized that a deal that was being celebrated at the bank and that was earning the bank a tremendous amount of fees, that those fees were actually fully covering the bank's credit risk. In other words, they were taking no risk. And the idea that I would have gotten a deal like that out of credit committee when I was in middle market lending and serving clients on, you know, 7th Avenue in New York City and in the Diamond District was just preposterous to me. And what it said to me is that the the institution had become more about making money than than really creating value. And um, I remember going, tell time for me to exit and get back to my roots. And so um, that's one one. And of course, sadly, the bank failed um, a few years after I left. And I think I kind of saw the beginnings of its failure. Hmm. So in the book, you write that, quote, business is the most influential institution of our day. And at one point, you even compare it to the church in the Middle Ages, which I thought was um, a very vivid uh, statement about the power that you believe the business wields. Now, some out there uh, would say maybe business shouldn't be the most influential institution. Mm-hmm. I know that um, if Anand Jirdharadis were having this conversation with us, the guy who wrote the book Winners Take All, he'd probably say that no matter how much good business does, it's always going to put its own interests above societal interests. Mm-hmm. If I'm reading you right, you're saying let's accept the fact that business has a lot of power and harness it for good. Am I, am I reading you right? Uh, I'd say it's part right. You also know, since you read the book, that I quote Anand Gertaradis, even though he was highly critical of the Aspen Institute, among other um, organizations like that, that uh, you know bring people together from the business sector as well as other sectors. But I'd say that yes, it's it's partly just a, it partly is just what is. I mean, these are you know business. The the kinds of companies that we're talking about here are global enterprises. They span in some cases hundreds of locations and you know offices across the world they have tremendous talent they have tremendous problem solving skill and we simply will not address our most complex problems whether you think it's inequality or you think it's racism or you think it's you know climate change which i would put at the top of the list you know we can't do it without business at the table thinking deeply um and using yes both its power and its capacity to you know to kind of address these complex problems. On the other hand, I am certainly not one who thinks that business ought to be in charge. Businesses get granted a license to operate. That op- that license to operate is a function of our trust in business. And I think that trust is at risk. And I believe to some degree, business leaders have lost their way, that they have become so enraptured with you know, shareholder kind of measures of success that we We've lost something kind of fundamental, and it's time for a real wake-up. So you frame your thinking in the book around these ideas of the new rules of business, um, and that many of the rules are unspoken assumptions that influence behavior, both in the C-suite and among the rank and file. And you're actually proposing in your book six new rules. But before we go to the new rules, I want to talk about the old rules, 
Mm-hmm. What were they, generally speaking, and why were they problematic? You started talking about it at, in the example you gave around Bankers Trust, but take us forward from there. What, what big problems are we trying to solve in the world of business? So I think one foundational thing that I just would start with is that business is not, let's remember, it's not a person here. Businesses are created to do things that we can't do individually. They are, um, they're not good or bad in and of themselves. They're not moral. They're not, you know, they are, they, they have good and bad results. Business managers, business executives, boards make good and bad decisions. It is for those of us who sit outside business to make judgments about whether the decisions that come from business work for society or not. But the design of companies is what produces those results. It's not inherent in business that it's either a good or a bad entity. So the the old rules tend to keep this area kind of flat. You know, the bounds of the business was the wall, you know, the walls of the business or the, the gates of the business. You know, the definition of what business felt it was responsible for is what it could measure in terms of its own footprint and maybe what its fence line neighbors thought of it. The value of companies was what we could measure in tangible, you know, uh, you know, metrics, uh, you know, bricks and mortar and investment and, uh, you know, as a roll up of, of the assets and what, and what they produce over time and then trying to discount that back and putting a, a number on it. Um, you know, the purpose of the enterprise was considered, uh, it was basically baked into these kind of flat financial metrics that tend to be backward looking, not forward looking. You know, and it's all about competition and it's about, um, you know, uh, reducing costs and employees are a cost of doing business. And so it's, a, it's, it's kind of flat. I'd say it's backward looking, not forward looking and not as dynamic as we know business is, both in terms of its influence and its, its potential. And so I think we're seeing a real shift that's a result of both forces that business uh, confronts on a daily basis, both the you know power of employees and and other agents of change, and um, and kind of the reality of of where the public is and what it thinks of business and what it expects. Is it fair to uh, blame business and blame capitalism for the dramatic inequality that we face today? Do you think is it a direct line? You know, it's a complicated it's a complicated domain, right? But yes, business has. Uh, I wouldn't, I don't place, I never place all the blame on, on something as amorphous as business. I think it, you know, it's a more nuanced question than that, but absolutely the design of firms produces the result we're getting now. Um, You know, we released um, some work earlier this year um, that we call the modern principles for sensible and effective pay. And there's based on five principles of what CEO pay would look like if we were designing companies to be um, the kinds of engines of, of creativity and innovation and, and problem solving that we know we need. And uh, one of the principles is about fairness and it asks very simple question. What's the right relationship between the CEO's pay and his or her direct reports? And then on down the food chain to people at the, you know, the front in the front of the factory and on the, you know, and on the retail floor. Um, and then it says, how much goes to the shareholders versus how much do we retain for investment in employees and in, uh, in, and in the needed infrastructure to continue to grow and flourish? And, you know, these are fundamental questions that boards are failing to ask today. And they, 
and the the lack of building um, kind of communities that you know kind of share well is a problem not only for the design of companies and making sure we deploy our talent well, but it definitely contributes to inequality. And one of the big contributors to inequality is is the is the fact that that companies put more money you know, back to shareholders through buybacks and dividends than they do in reinvesting in their own enterprise. And so that's that's a real problem. That's a real problem and a big contributor of inequality. In fact, the fact the stock market itself, I mean, 50% of Americans own shares of stock, but the vast majority, 99% of them, have very small holdings under $100,000. So the concentration of wealth we have witnessed in the last 40 years as we put shareholders at the center of the bullseye is, in fact, directly connected to inequality. So that's kind of a market effect. It's about finance. It's about investment. It's not just about you know specific enterprises. But it's part of the system that we, we have built and designed and that we have to build differently. So now one of the new rules uh, in your book really relates to this idea of stakeholder capitalism, that businesses serve a broad range of stakeholders, not just their shareholders. And this is really a key idea in how I think about the role of business in promoting the financial health of their customers, their employees, and their communities. But I'd like to focus in on one particular group of stakeholders that you mentioned a moment ago, employees. And employees are actually the subject of your rule number four, employees give voice to risk and competitive advantage. So share more about how businesses are starting to engage their employees differently and why this is so critical to the bottom line. You know, um, one of the friends of and advisors to the Aspen Business and so- uh, Society Program is Leo Strine, the, you know, the former chancellor of the Delaware Court. And he keeps reminding me that, you know, when you use the term ESG, you know, environments, social and governance kind of mer- measures of success, that that S is way too complicated and that we need to pull employees out. That's a different component altogether. I kind of reject the language of stakeholders. I don't think it's very useful to us. You know, it's been used for a long period of time and I'd like to undo it and unpack it a bit because I think every company is different. They have, they, they're organized for different purposes and what's critical to their success depends on that enterprise. But one thing is absolutely true is that in every single enterprise, the employees are the company. They're the source of, of creation. They're the source of innovation and of a of, yes of risk identification and of and of seeing the opportunities that we might otherwise miss and of quality control and of customer service and of you know kind of building the kinds of enterprises that you know are resilient. They are the they're the they're the link between the inside and the outside and that was never more apparent than with the kind of younger generations that that are working moving into the workforce today. That clearly, you know, bring, you know, that expression about bring your whole whole selves to work. I mean, you know, between that and their their command of social media, you know, it's hard to divide their experience as employees from their their roles in communities and in families and as citizens. And I and I think this is all of this, this cauldron of, of kind of of experience of the kinds of employees that are that are moving into business today. Um, is something that CEOs have have needed to respond to forcefully. And what we're seeing in the last couple of years in particular, um, we certainly saw a lot of it after the election of Donald Trump, you know, where we had CEOs that needed to kind of lean in and say, I've got your back, you know? No, I 
I hear I hear this call to throw out citizens of seven different countries with Muslim majorities. Well, I know where you live and I know where you come from and I have your back and we're going to support you in um, as an employee and as an important contributor to our success. And so we saw it with that. We saw it with with, um, you know, the kind of bold statements and actions that companies took on guns, um, on, on, you know, the kind of social just, justice issues and the Black Lives Matter movement and after Charlottesburg. It's, it's been a cacophony of issues that CEOs heretofore would not have touched um, out of fear that they would be offending, you know, part of their employee base, but also their customer base. And those days are over. So they're they're responding to their employees when they when they uh, when they speak forcefully on an issue, it's usually because they they're speaking to the kind of nature and concern of their employee base. Hmm. So it sounds like this might be sort of enlightened uh, behavior on their part that uh, whether they want to or not, they've got to be thinking differently about their employees because employees are demanding it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, but I also think that they, um, you know, it's about culture and it's a more connected culture and they are, uh, they're, they're concerned with building a place where they're getting the best out of their employees. And, you know, they see the kind of connective tissue and the, again, the power of social media and the ability for employees to both, build teams to get work done, but also build teams to challenge the corporation where they live. You know, we saw this with Amazon, with the employees that rose up and started using their own shares of stock to, uh, you know, challenge the the company's posture on climate change or their lack of progress on climate change. You know, we saw it with the Me Too movement, with, you know, Google and the Google walkout. We've seen it on, you know, uh, you know, on behalf of employees that have challenged whether or not their company ought to be taking on certain kinds of contractors or, you know, in the defense industry or ICE or, um, you know, there's been a number of ways in which, you know, these executives think are also playing defense here. They're trying to make sure that they are ahead of the game and are, are um, they understand and are listening to the concerns that their employees have, um, which may in fact reflect not just their own personal beliefs, but uh, you know, the concerns of a wider public here. So they're just very interesting. They're, I do believe I use the term allies. I think I think employees are the, are the firm's allies. And uh, to the extent that we're designing companies with that in mind, we're more likely to be identifying both the risks and opportunities that will present themselves um, through growth. I do wonder, though, if the events of the last couple of years in particular, where we've seen uh, employees speak out in a way that maybe has led to allyship. Um, if that's not really more of a phenomenon of white collar workers, and as it relates to uh, blue collar workers, either currently unionized or ones that might have been unionized in a day long past, whether they get the same uh, treatment. Yeah, I think that is true. I think um, you know, voice is. Uh probably a function of power and employees that that um, feel empowered and more likely to use it. So we certainly see it in the tech industry, for example. I think there's some interesting examples, though, of, of um, you know, we could go back again to Amazon where, you know, organizing has been, you know, present again. And that's not, that's not a function of, of uh, empowered employees. That's a function of the power of employees who decide to collaborate to try to, you um, 
you know, command something different. And so I think we're seeing some interesting examples. We also saw, we're seeing some, I think another kind of interesting piece of this puzzle is that in a world that has been quick to contract out work as a way to reduce cost, we're seeing employees increasingly identify with the person on the other side of the cubicle who may be doing exactly the same job as they are, but without the same pay and benefits because they're, you know, they're working in the company's name, but they're not on their payroll. And that kind of identification is also enabled by, by technology, mm. by just adjacency, and it's one of those domains where I think we haven't yet seen this play out yet. Real companies have to step up. It's another huge contributor to inequality, as you know, and instability and financial insecurity. And will employees enable um, a more thoughtful approach to saying, why and when does it really make sense to outsource jobs? What are the terms of that? And what piece of this do we need to understand and be responsible for as an enterprise? Yeah. Let's shift now to your rule number six, which is co-create to win. I tend to think of this as the partnership rule or maybe the strange bedfellows rule. Um, You know, one of the themes of this podcast is around uh, creating integrated systems in order to truly meet the holistic needs of um, the people we serve. Uh, And this rule seems critical to me in building those systems. Um, Talk to us a little bit more about your thinking here. So it comes up a lot in in the environmental domain, um, you know, climate change, uh, fisheries, you know, the health of the ecosystem. You simply, you know, you know, I, you know, in a, at a time of what really does feel like existential, you know, crisis, the answers are not found within individual firms that are competing with one another. It's found in building the commons that is going to support. Um, and sustain the ecosystem. And so one of the examples I use in the book is, is about fisheries and a stunning example of cod fishing industry in the, in the, North, um, in the North Atlantic. And how, and, but you're, you're right, Jen, that it is also about partnership because what happens is that usually there's an aggressive NGO and then there's a less aggressive NGO who is more of an intermediary between the aggressive NGO and the businesses that um, are called to the table, usually because they've got a brand at risk. And so these, these players that, um, uh, the one that I talk about is a guy named Jim Cannon who runs something called the Sustainable Fisheries Partnership. And he was kind of the intermediary between the um, uh, you know investigative journalists that were looking at the practices in in the kind of the Pollock and and cod industry that is, you know, what we find in fish sticks and McDonald's food products, and needed to weave together the partnership where the largest of the the players in the industry was the first to step forward and say, we need to raise the standard across our industry if we're still going to have jobs in the next 20 or 40 years. So how do we help the commons? It's simply going to require common protocols for operating, um, giving up something with everybody at the table in order to stabilize the situation. And of course, you know, climate is very much like that. You know, we have seen in the last year the Business Roundtable, which represents the largest U.S. corporations, finally land a position paper on climate change. This is the first time that they've spoken out on climate in 15 years. I think it's fair to ask whether the individual members that have signed on to this, what they're actually doing in terms of their own lobbying dollars. I think that's something we'll learn more about in the next weeks and months. But the intention has been set. And it's clearly saying, 
even though there are members of the business roundtable that will, um, uh, you know, there's winners and losers here if we if we get a price on carbon and we represent both of them, there is a sense that we're in this together and we're simply going to have to change the rules of the game if we're going to survive. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're seeing more examples of that. And um, we've always seen them. We saw them after World War II when businesses, you know, banded together to create jobs for the guys coming home from the front, you know, yeah. created six million jobs to absorb the army when they came back. So that kind of enterprise is something that kind of fades from view for us in this in this kind of modern era. And I think we're starting to see some of the reweaving of the kinds of coalitions and intentions that require more people at the table together collaborating and creating a system of change. And clearly, that spans multiple sectors. It's not just a business enterprise. It engages nonprofits, engages government and others. Yeah. So you mentioned um, the Business Roundtable and their statement on climate, um, but in a way, their latest, dare I call it activism, really started about 15 months ago now when they announced the release of a new statement on the purpose of a corporation signed by, I think it's 181 CEOs who committed to lead their companies for the benefit of their customers, their employers, their their employees, their suppliers, their communities, and their shareholders. Notice I did not use the word stakeholder there, my friend. Mm -hmm. Well done. Um, You were an important influencer um, behind the ultimate creation of that statement. And here we are a little more than a year later. And what a year it's been, right? Pandemic, economic downturn, racial unrest, extreme divisiveness, historical election, with growing all of this growing inequality, right? Uh, corporations have really been put to the test. Um, how are they doing, do you think? Have they gone beyond their signatures uh, to walk the talk? You know, I think we're seeing movement, but I think we've got a ways to go. I'm not a Pollyanna about this. Um, you know, I uh, just yesterday or just in, you know, in the month of December, the, the Vatican released its... Uh, the name of their guardians of inclusive capitalism, something to that effect. And it's, you know, it's some of the executives, same executives who signed onto the business roundtable. And it's once again, it's kind of like a set of principles and ideas that we share and that we think is going to help us all move together in this kumbaya moment here. You know, ultimately, this is a provenance of boards and executives. You know, we don't need... Um, Yes, I, th- I felt that the business roundtable statement was critically important as a change of direction and a setting of intentions. But, you know, as I like to say, purpose is revealed through our operations. And the measure of success is, is through the health of the society that business is wholly a part of. So, you know, you don't have a, you know, you don't have good customers if they're not making, if they're not healthy themselves. And so it's obviously in business's interest to lean into this, but there's a lot of contrary forces that reinforce the status quo. And those also give me concern. I mean, we can talk about CEO pay and how it's structured and what it's rewarding. We can talk about what are we actually teaching in business classrooms and law classrooms about the purpose of the corporation. We still have work to do. I also think, and and I'd like to think that we'll see a lot of change with the the people that are already in, in command. But in some respects, I think where we're gonna see it is in a generational shift. I think we're gonna be recruiting and building the pipeline with very different, with people that are much more of this era, of this moment of tremendous complexity and changing expectations of the firm, and who naturally 
will build the kinds of coalitions and um, decision rules that will stand the test of time. However, that means they're going to need to resist the tremendous power of investors. You know, we talk about shareholders as if they're a monolithic kind of class here. They're not. They're all over the map. They have all kinds of different expectations and demands. Um, consumers are not our friend here. Consumers rebound to price and convenience. Business is going to have to, business has the agency to do it, but it's going to require courage. It's going to require defining success in a different way. And it's going to require standing up to the demands of shareholders who are going to, you know, more likely to short your stock if you hire people than than buy your stock. Well, I I can see the agenda for the next decade of your work uh, forming uh, now as we speak. Um, I really appreciate you joining Emerge Everywhere, and I encourage everyone to get your new book, The Six New Rules of Business: Creating Value in a Changing World. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Jen. Look forward to seeing you again soon. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. I'm Jennifer Tesher, and I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests and your reactions to the show. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jen Tesher. If you liked this episode, please review the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work and research we do, please visit emerge.finhealthnetwork.org. See you next time.